Future City is made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. From WYPR in Baltimore, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome to Future City, our monthly radio conversation that moves to the debate from what's wrong to what's next. Each month on the show, we lift up a different example of an innovative idea that's making positive change in another city, and then we ask the question, could it work here? And if so, how? In our first two episodes, we've tackled ideas that could affect major change here in Baltimore. Rethinking city schools as community learning centers, like Cincinnati has done, which would impact Baltimore's children and our families. And decriminalizing pot in a way that Denver has done, which could have major ripple effects throughout the justice system, the medical establishment, and how we think about these issues financially. You can listen back to these programs, by the way, online at wypr.org slash future city. Here on our third episode... During this week between Veterans Day and Thanksgiving, we turn to a topic with perhaps smaller numbers, but with huge moral implications. And it's an issue near and dear to my heart because I'm a combat veteran who's done a lot of advocacy work on veterans' issues, such as repealing of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, veteran suicide prevention, and reforming the VA. It also hits close to home because people dear to me have experienced homelessness and because I think it's a travesty that men and women who have served our country are still living on the streets when they come back home. Every night in America, almost 50,000 veterans are homeless. Partly that's because veterans are as vulnerable as anyone to the factors that contribute to homelessness, affordable health care and housing shortages, and the lack of jobs that pay well. But then they can also face special hurdles, including substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other mental illnesses, and not enough social and family support. As of last January, Baltimore's homeless population measured more than 2,700, including about 330 veterans. Experts say that if you count people living on the edge who might become homeless tomorrow, the numbers are much higher. But we're at a moment of real change across the country on this issue. Two years ago, First Lady Michelle Obama announced the mayor's challenge to end veteran homelessness by 2015, and 355 mayors pledged that they would, including Baltimore's. But so far, only two states and 29 communities have reached that goal. Obviously, we haven't solved this problem, or we wouldn't be here today. So for this, our third episode of Future City, we'll look at veterans' homelessness here in Baltimore and in Riverside, California, a city some 2,300 miles west near San Bernardino that's making great strides. Our first guest today is Paul Martin. Paul is a Baltimorean who, as you'll hear, has witnessed homelessness in this city from a lot of different perspectives. Paul, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So as a veteran, when and where did you serve? I served on uh, several ships in Norfolk, Virginia. You're a Navy man? Yes. Uh, USS John F. Kennedy and USS Vulcan, AR-5. And how long did you serve? I served for three years. So bring us back 20 years ago. Where were you 20 years ago? What was your What was your life like? What was your situation like? Well, 20 years ago, I was at a state of shock, a state of emergency. I had uh, 
debilitating problems as it pertains to drug use and abuse and mental health problems. I found myself being asked to leave my family's homes and dwellings because of my drug use. Shame and guilt prevented me from going into shelters and other resources that this city had available until I stumbled upon the Baltimore Station, which at that time was the Baltimore Homeless Shelter, and it had a mixed population of individuals, including veterans. They helped me to regain some air of normalcy and sanity. When you started uh, having challenges with substance abuse, was this something that happened prior to going into the service, post being in the service? Bring, bring us into that, into that moment where this became a real problem in your life. Of course, I was a child of the 60s, and uh, during the 60s and 70s, uh, marijuana and cocaine and all those things were prevalent. Of course, I had challenges, but they weren't as severe as when I came into the service and was able to travel around and go to the different cities and get involved as a young adult. Uh, I noticed that uh, I, my, after getting out of the military, that my because of the shame and guilt associated with not being able to get good jobs or have an income and take care of uh, my family, my daughter, Sierra, uh, that I started to see my uh, substance abuse increase. And therefore, uh, I depended on it to earn a living. I depended on it to help me with the way that I was feeling. And uh, that is where my wreckage began, to my downfall. Were there any moments that you remember in particular where it first clicked in your mind, I had a problem? Was there a, sing was, was there a singular time when you said, uh, I've lost control? Well, I really didn't realize that I had a problem until after I came into treatment. I thought that those things that were happening to me were because of the society that I lived in and the environment that I lived in. Uh, the problem that I thought that I had, I, I didn't attribute it to the drugs and alcohol uh, I found out after coming to the Baltimore station and after dealing with the professionals uh, that helped me and continued to help me to remain uh, manageable in my life, I found out that my major problem was personal responsibility. I didn't understand about the stages of development, see, because I had lived in the community uh, as a adolescent and I had lived in the community as an infant, but I never lived in the community as a young adult. Um, I lived, I was whisked away to the military at the age of 17 years old. And those things that I was supposed to learn in those developmental years, uh, I didn't learn them. The Dear John letters and how to be turned down and how to be a productive member of the community. I didn't learn any of those things. So after returning to the, from the military to the streets of Baltimore, to my community, I found out that my community was like structured. I didn't have anyone to talk to. They spoke a different language. They were strangers to me. My family was a stranger to me. And it caused me to have a significant amount of anxiety, fear, doubt, insecurity. And so to combat those feelings, I used alcohol and drugs regularly so I would feel comfortable and more secure. If you're just tuning in, it's Future City. I'm Wes Moore, and I'm here in studio with Paul Martin, a veteran who once found himself homeless on the streets in Baltimore. And, and if you bring us back to that moment, if you can, when you found yourself here in Baltimore, having, having served the country and finding yourself with nowhere to go. Well, I have to tell you, Wes, uh, one of the things that led me into recovery was I had a problem with my heart. 
because of so much drug use and the intensity in which I used drugs, I uh, had problems with my heart. And I found myself in the hospital. Uh, the place where I was living, I was already behind in rent. And uh, I found that I was not able to take care of my responsibilities in that area. But I found myself in the hospital for about six to seven weeks and into a rehabilitation home. When I re returned, I saw all my personal belongings out on the street, and it began to rain. And uh, I looked down and I saw some of my paperwork in the gutter, and amongst those documents was my birth certificate. And it was raining real hard, and I had to gather as much as I could. And I went to look for help, and uh, I found help at the Baltimore station. Can you talk a little bit about the process that you went through, the other places that you went to before you got to Baltimore Station and why that made such a difference in, in your trajectory? Yes, I went to another program. It was a program exclusively for veterans. Uh, it didn't necessarily, it was a good program and it's still a good program. And I don't want to take anything away from it, but it didn't work for me. But one of the reasons why, because it was structured in, as a military regimen. I'm not, it wasn't in the service anymore. You know, uh, I had the structure that I had learned to serve. I knew how it was, but uh, that modality of treatment didn't necessarily work for me. Uh, I was referred by them to the Baltimore station, and it had a different modality of treatment. It was preparing me for the community as a citizen. So when I say the words to you, Baltimore station, Tell me what you think about. Tell me what it means to you. It is a place where individuals can have three major goals in mind. The individuals who are in treatment there should have these three goals in mind, and they can attain these three goals. And those three goals are to have a better quality of life, to become better managers over their life, and lastly, and most importantly, to be a productive member of the community. So the Baltimore Station means a lot to me because of service. But to those that I serve, those three major goals should be of the utmost importance. What, what role do you play there now? Right now, I'm the program manager there. And what does that mean? Uh, what my job is to the day-to-day -day operations of the program and uh, the clinical case management. I am in charge of all of those things under the tutelage of Arlene Hackbarth. And so... Give me the myriad of examples of people who will walk into Baltimore Station needing support. Well, uh, the ages range from about 20 to about 84 years old. So we're talking people who have been veterans of, of multiple wars. Multiple wars. We've had all kinds of individuals there, from the menial cooks, you might say, to the electronic warfare technicians, to uh, even some uh, Secret Service individuals that have been military uh, examples. So I would say to you that uh, the individuals that I serve, they come in with a host of different problems, mental health problems. Uh, they have all the kind of problems, physical problems, but they all suffer from one particular problem, and that is insecurity. And uh, they are afraid, a lot of them. Now describe that. What do you mean by that? They suffer from insecurity and they're afraid. Because they don't know who to turn to. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they know something is going on with it, but they don't know what they, to call it. And when something is, I would say, affecting you, and you don't know what's going on. There's a certain level of fear and you know, or being afraid.
that happens. How did how does that happen? How does someone who is willing to face the the things that military veterans are willing to face and and to walk headfirst into it? How then does the common thread of people who come to Baltimore Station is that they're afraid? One is because, as you know, Wes, uh, in the military regiment, the orders that I define very clear, concise, and you know exactly what to do. Your orders are your orders. You follow them to the T, and the mission is clear. When you are a civilian and you come into a world that is unstructured, such as the community, a lot of different people, a lot of different attitudes, and yourself personally are going through struggles that you don't realize what's going on or you don't know what to call it. Uh, We might disguise the fear by using drugs and alcohol, but it's there. And we see it's prevalent when the drugs and alcohol are removed. And so that's how I can clearly say uh, fear is prevalent in most of all the individuals that I serve because now they can't mask those feelings that drugs and alcohol help them to suppress. You're tuned in to Future City. I'm Wes Moore, and I'm talking with Paul Martin, a formerly homeless veteran who is now a program manager at South Baltimore Station. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll look west, way west, to Riverside, California, at an ambitious effort to eliminate homelessness in that city. And we'll talk with a nonprofit leader, a health systems manager, and a journalist there about how it's working. Stay with us. more. Welcome back to Future City, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. In our last segment, we spoke with Mr. Paul Martin, a veteran who used to be homeless and on the streets of our city. We'll come back to more of Paul's story later in this hour, but for now, we'd like to look at a city that's had great success in housing homeless veterans, Riverside, California. To get a sense of what's happening there, we're joined now on the phone by two guests, Bess Sandor, of the LA-based nonprofit Community Solutions and Lynn Brockmeyer of the Riverside University Health System. Beth heads up an ambitious effort called Built for Zero, which was formerly called Zero 2016, which is helping communities across the country to get to net zero homeless veterans. Now hang on to that term because we'll explain what that means in a moment. Lynn Brockmeyer's the boots on the ground making that vision a reality where she serves as the Director of Housing for Behavioral Health for the whole Riverside region. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Beth, you. If, you, if it's okay, let me start with you. Um, can you explain that term for us, net zero? Yeah, so when um, a community has ended veteran homelessness, that is measured by does a community have less veterans homeless today in their community than they've demonstrated they're capable of housing in a routine month. 
And that definition is really meant to demonstrate a community's ongoing capability to stay ahead of um, the challenges around homelessness. So we don't expect that a veterans in our communities will never become homeless again, but we want to make sure that we have built the systems that are capable to rapidly rehouse them as soon as they do become homeless. And so this definition of net zero or, or functional zero for ending veteran homelessness is designed to really get at um, that measure and that that end state that we're looking for. So, so with that being the goal, think about where we are right now as a country when it comes to veterans, veteran homelessness. Are we anywhere near net zero? We're getting closer every day. I think we're, we're seeing communities across the country being able to um, measure the needle moving in that direction. Um, and that has really happened because communities like Riverside have gotten serious about having real-time data on the number of veterans who are homeless in their community at any given point. And so as more and more communities have that kind of dynamic data that demonstrates who's coming into the system, who's coming out, we're able to really measure a shift towards that, that end state of functional zero. And we, we believe it's possible to get there and also possible to sustain that over time. So we have more data and we're, we're able to put more numbers behind this. Uh, what are the other factors that you think make this a critical moment? Uh, and what other factors are missing in order for us to get to that number? As you'll see with Riverside, I think one of the critical factors is leadership and accountability, real clarity on who's in charge and that someone is driving towards this goal and coordinating all of the pieces seamlessly. So I think that that is working really well. I think one of the challenges that we have nationally is, is as we've had better and better data, and this isn't just about having numbers, it's about having person-specific actionable data to really understand the housing and services needs of the people on the ground in these communities. And as that data has gotten better, one of the things we've learned is what a huge impact inflow into the homelessness homeless system is having on communities trying to get to these goals. And I think really understanding why so many veterans are still coming into homelessness when we have so many veteran service organizations in this country is a challenge that we are still facing. And I think really the next phase of this work is going upstream and figuring out how do we ensure that no veterans are coming into homelessness while we're also ensuring that communities like Riverside have really robust systems to make sure no one experiences homelessness um, for long. But the real end game is ensuring that people aren't becoming homeless in the first place. But what's interesting, Beth, is that, you know, the issue of veterans homelessness, that's not a new problem, right? I mean, this is a problem that we've dealt with uh, for, for, you know, for countless decades because of countless, you know, conflicts and and trying to deal with that reintegration. this, but you, but you feel like at this time that we now have a better grasp of the issues that are taking place and what needs to be done. Why does now feel so different than what we've had for for decades prior and with other with other wars? Yeah, I, I think I think the leadership um, around having a national goal around ending veteran homelessness, um, the Obama administration really setting that clear target and communities. Um, taking that challenge on for themselves and really owning those goals has been created a shift in the thinking. So I think the fact that we now have proof points that it is possible, um, and, and Riverside really gives us that, that 
once you create a proof point around a new normal, it's really hard to make a case um, that we can't solve this problem. And so um, communities across the country that are demonstrating that it is possible to have systems in place that can quickly identify someone who's homeless, pair them with the housing and resources that they need quickly, and ensure that they stay housed um, means that we can bend the curve on this problem in the long term. So for you, also understanding that you know having the, the First Lady and having the administration behind it is one thing, but when you look at a city like Riverside, that municipal leadership, that on-the-ground leadership is absolutely crucial as well. Absolutely. I think um, a, a federal goal to end veteran homelessness is only as good as the execution on the ground, right? Local communities have to own those goals for themselves and decide it is important for us to get to this goal, and local leaders need to hold themselves accountable for those outcomes. I've been talking with Beth Sandor, who heads up an initiative called Built for Zero, which is based in Los Angeles. Now I want to bring into the conversation Lynn Brockmeyer, who heads up behavioral health for the Riverside University Health System. Lynn, I've heard you described as a data guru, uh, which makes me very excited because I'm a person who loves data myself. But I want to ask you to share with us some numbers. Uh, What are some of the stats that you've seen coming across your desk that you think really speak to the progress that Riverside has made in comparison to other places? I think that the fact that since January of 2015, we've been able to house more than 578 chronically homeless veterans is the key factor. And over the last three years, we've housed more than a 1,000 veterans. And with numbers like that, you know you're beginning to have an impact on those veterans who are living on the street. So now that the city has reached really a functional zero uh, in homelessness amongst veterans, are there lessons that, uh, that you've taken from that effort that you're now applying to combating homelessness more broadly to a larger community? Um, yes, we are. And actually, for us, the net zero is our entire county, which is 8,000 square miles. I think the main key factor is that community collaboration, that it starts with the leaders in the community. Our federal partners were really um, important in helping us resolve some of the barriers that we over had to overcome. Um, there were leaders of key organizations, such as our Department of Social Services, our housing authorities, public health, as well as the nonprofits and individual service agencies in the community. I do agree with that, though, that you have to have key people who have this as a singular focus. They have to be dedicated and focused on this as a task. And you have to have frequent intersections with each other through meetings and calls. And that navigation council that we have weekly was really instrumental in doing that. I think also that dedicated outreach and engagement teams are really critical because they're the ones in the street. They're the ones um, looking and searching and engaging those that are the hardest to reach. Joining us now by phone is someone who's been studying and documenting the changes in Riverside, California. Alicia Robinson is a city reporter for the Riverside Press Enterprise, and she's done substantial reporting on homelessness there. Alicia, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what is the feeling around town that you've been reporting amongst the folks who are, you know, moving off of the streets? Uh, Does something feel different? Does a change feel palpable? 
Certainly, if you talk to the officials that work with the homeless, uh, they feel like they have been able to achieve, you know, some significant changes. Now, Riverside is the largest city in the two-county inland area, and it's also the county seat. Um, So they have perhaps a little more of a challenge with homeless issues than some of the other cities in the region. Um, So the Riverside uh, participated in the mayor's challenge to end veteran homelessness, which was issued by Michelle Obama and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, with the, um, the goal of getting communities to house all of their homeless veterans by the end of 2015. So Riverside's mayor was among about 900 officials around the country that agreed to participate in this challenge. Um, By the way, Baltimore Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake was one of seven Maryland officials that actually signed on to the effort as well, according to HUD's website. So rather than pouring a bunch of new resources into the effort, uh, Riverside focused on coordinating programs and services that already existed, and um, advocates put together a list of the names of all the homeless veterans and the city's homeless coordinator said that having that list, getting all the service providers together and being able to check names off the list was very motivating for them, um, you know, to see people tangibly represented, to know, you know, who they were helping and be able to track the progress, um, I think was very motivating. Now, they were able to house um, the, their goal of 89 people um, by the end of 2015 was actually the last person finding a spot on December 31st. And so you, you bring, but that's a really important thing, and I don't want to just pass over it. The importance of a by name list. So you're saying before then it was just what a by number list. Uh, how how did they structure it before, and why did transferring it to a by name list make such a difference? In the past, they had always had um, efforts, including an outreach team that would go out and you know talk to homeless folks on the street. But I don't think that they were as organized as far as knowing specifically um, in the case of who was a veteran and might be. Um, eligible for those kind of services. And then also, um, you know, it, it, sometimes it took, you know, repeated contacts with people, you know, to get them to uh, be willing to accept assistance. But I think it was, as I said, the fact of having a list with, you know, everybody's name, knowing who they were, knowing their situation, and um, being able to see the progress they were making when they were able to get people into housing that I think was useful. Another obstacle that they found that one of the city's homeless officials told me was uh, they encountered a lack of trust among veterans. So they had to kind of build up that trust uh, before they could get people to agree to participate and to um, accept services. And that's probably an issue across a broader homeless population as well. That's Riverside Press Enterprise reporter Alicia Robinson. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned in to Future City. At the heart of our conversation today, the problem of veteran homelessness and how to put an end to it. After the break, we'll bring the conversation from California back home to Baltimore. Stay with us.
I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. In our last segment, we heard from two housing experts in Riverside, California, Beth Sandor and Lynn Brockmeyer. They spoke to us about the city's success in housing veterans and its ambitious effort to effectively eliminate homelessness altogether. Now, Beth and Lynn are still standing by on the phone, but we want to bring the conversation now back here, back home, back to Baltimore. At the top of our program, we met with Paul Martin, who's a veteran, Navy vet, who was homeless and on the streets of Baltimore 20 years ago. And today, he's a program director and mentor at the Baltimore Station, a nonprofit community where homeless veterans rebuild their lives. Paul is here in the studio with us now as we continue the conversation, as well as his colleague, John Friedel, the executive director of the Baltimore Station. John came to working with the homeless after a first a career in the corporate world. John and Paul, it's great to have you both here as part of the conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Now, now you both have heard, and we've talked about the scene that's taking place in Riverside, where almost 580 people have been housed since January of 2015, and there now remain only 23 names on the city's list of actively homeless people. Uh, but I want to turn it back to here and to better understand what's going on here. John, what is the homeless veteran population here in Baltimore, and what is the situation we're dealing with in this city? While we've made a lot of progress in terms of getting a coordinated access and a coordinated care model together, we still have a large number of people who are homeless on the streets of Baltimore. Many of them are veterans, anywhere from four to 700, I believe. And again, there's also, as, as was mentioned in Riverside, a large number of folks who are precariously housed and may be homeless at any given moment. Um, Baltimore, being a large urban center, with multiple generations of poverty and addiction and, and drugs, um, you know, presents itself with some different challenges, the least of which is not having a lot of uh, available housing that's affordable and good. Terribly different from even the situation that was described in Riverside? I think in Baltimore City, when we look at the density of population and the poverty level and the violence in the streets, I think that it presents itself uh, much in a way of recurring trauma. You know, mm -hmm. we, we talk about folks coming back from war where they've experienced battle and warfare and post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think in Baltimore City, there's a recurring stress of living in the poverty-stricken communities where violence is prevalent. And so, uh, so, so, Paul, let me ask you, after hearing what you just heard about the things that are taking place in Riverside, knowing both your experiences personally and the experiences you've had at Baltimore Station, how did they both, the conversation they had about what they're doing and also where they're trying to go, how did that strike you? First of all, I'd like to say that uh, those of Riverside, we appreciate you and all that you do. And housing veterans is an important part of a veteran's life wherever we are. Let's say that first. Uh, here at the, at the uh, apex of homelessness for Baltimore City and veterans, we found out that the individuals come and come with more problems than just homelessness so therefore uh, to house them first uh, in, our, in my opinion as a clinician uh, runs into great problems. We see an uh, increase in the recidivism rate. That's one thing that we see. So when an individual comes in for admission in on our program and the housing is just symptomatic of all those other things and issues that they may have. So it's not so easy to house them. It's not because uh, we found out that uh, they have unemployment issues which is symptomatic where they have uh, a wreckage of their past to find that is symptomatic. So before we can house them and say that they are truly house and to decrease the recidivism rate, we have to get to those underlying issues. 
Well, and so you bring up a really important point. And so there's a question I actually have for, for, for all four of you. And the question is really this, and, and I'm going to start with, uh, with, with Beth and Lynn over in California uh, and then bring it back here. I want to understand the different schools of thought and play uh, because it seems to me that both on a national level and also here in, in, in Baltimore City that the main model these days is a housing first model. It's, you know, we need to get people in housing, permanent housing, before they can start addressing all the other underlying, uh, all the other underlying issues to homelessness. And there's federal funding that's contingent on that. Uh, but there are other organizations, you know, such as McVet here in Baltimore, and I'll say in, in full disclosure that I've helped raise funds for in the past, um, that swear by almost the absolute opposite model um, that is addressing the root causes and requiring veterans to move through a series of steps to show progress and commitment before moving them into that housing housing framework. Beth, let me let me start with you, uh, Beth Sandor in California. What's your philosophy on the different models uh, about how we can place this? Is it a housing first or do we have to address the other things first? Where does this fall into the spectrum of needs that we have for uh, for, for homeless veterans? Well, I think the evidence base is clear, and I think that is um, nationally uh, the data demonstrates that a housing-first approach to ending homelessness gets us better results. And so housing-first doesn't mean housing only. The idea is to rapidly move people into housing and then wrap the services and support that people will need to address their health and mental health um, employment needs, income needs on an ongoing basis. Not prioritizing housing for individuals who are very ill and very vulnerable um, makes it much more difficult for folks to address those underlying issues if they're simply having to every day survive, figure out how they're going to get shelter, um, where they're going to eat. Um, I can't imagine for my own family, um, I have a, a brother who uh, was, is a veteran of the Army, and I can't imagine um, if he had ongoing health and mental health needs, asking him to address those while living on the streets or in shelter and not immediately seeing the need for permanent housing as an urgent um, health need in and of itself. Paul Martin, you know, you are now serving as a program director over here at Baltimore Station. And, you know, taking what, what Beth just said, uh, you know, if you look at it, as the Baltimore Sun reported, you know, organizations like a McVet here in Baltimore uh, even turned down over a million dollars in HUD financing and, and funding in order to hold on to that military style model um, because they feel that that's what works best for veterans who are coming from a more structured, structured type of environment. Help me make sense of it all about how all these different models play together, work together, and is there, is there, is there a, a sense of, of continuity that can exist in these different type of models? And I would say to you, uh, uh, the structure at the veterans programs here in Baltimore uh, tend to be very high. Uh, and it's a theory called uh, the state-dependent learning. Because when individuals come into their program and they're so unmanageable on so many different levels, that they have to find a place in their life where they're structured and built from that place because uh, the other parts of their lives are so unmanageable. So there are some veteran pro programs that state-dependent learning uh, really takes in 
account their military structure and that military structure they uh, they put the uh, barrack style uh, bunks in the dormitories and they uh, do what you're told do what you're told do what you're told philosophy but we at the Baltimore station found out that we uh, we off obviously we tried that way as well but we found out that that type of uh, treatment uh, fosters uh, dependence rather than independence because when they when they go back home or go into the community where will be the drill instructor where will be the company commander then to tell them exactly what to do at the Baltimore station as I said before we have a client-centered view and we make a safe place uh, you know trauma-informed care where we will be able to help individuals to be the major stakeholder in their lives. And so therefore, in our residential treatment facility, which we have 91 beds there, we help individuals to take over their lives by being responsible for their medical care, being responsible for all of these things, using those wrap services at the VA, while the case management staff monitors all this daily, and they help them through all the hurdles that they might uh, come in contact with while they're repairing their lives. Now, Lynn, I, I want to bring you back into the conversation. What role does the family play in all of this? Uh, you know, whether it be a reintegration with a family, helping to reconnect to the family. You know, one, one thing I think we all know and we all you know learn about this work is this cannot be done in a sense of isolation. So is there, is there work that you are doing and particularly uh, really getting to functional zero? Um, how does that play into this conversation? Part of my work is also as a manager of a housing program that is very diverse. And we've been doing housing first for more than two decades before it became a quote-unquote best practice model. We've been doing it because it works. It works with those who have really significant barriers such as behavioral health challenges or substance use or um, health problems. And I think in regards to your question about families, I think they're really critical. A lot of individuals who have been chronically homeless on the street have burned a lot of bridges. And their barriers and the elements of those barriers affected everyone, including their family members. And a lot of them have difficulty interacting with their family members. And from that perspective, it's very difficult for them to continue to um, have any kind of relationship with them. What we have recognized then is that once the individual is in housing and is beginning to live uh, independently, beginning to address those barriers, one of our key focuses is to reconnect them with family, to begin to connect those individuals back with their own support system outside of the intensive case management support or housing support that we're providing. Getting that connection back is really critical for developing long-term stability within their houses. So thinking about, you know, that, John, and, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, you serve as the executive director of Baltimore Station. There's a dynamic that you have to deal with and that, frankly, even the folks in California don't necessarily have to deal with. That's the weather dynamic. 
that's how things are about to change very quickly for the veterans who are living on the streets of Baltimore City versus the ones who are living on the streets of Riverside or, or, or Los Angeles. Uh, how do you prepare for that? Uh, and how does the seasonal nature of this work matter? Well, it's interesting. I mean, traditionally, the winter has always had an uptick, but I will say even in this past year, we have maximized utilization of the 91 beds we have for the veteran population. We've actually been holding a few extra over that we're not funded to do simply because there's a demand and a need, and people see that need and come in. So as winter uh, comes upon us, we actually you know, prepare to actually take on more folks and uh, fill to capacity. But it is important to note that in the past year, even in the summer months, we've been full up on the veteran-funded beds. Um, so I think that's a, an important note. You know, and again, I think as a point of differentiation for us, too, we are a low to no barrier um, entry point. So we have some of the, I guess, most in need veterans coming through our door in terms of mental health, physical health, and all the other things. As a, a lot of the resourcing for mental health provision in our region has dried up from the VA and locally, and not all fully service-connected veterans are able to avail themselves, we make those connections while they're in residence with us. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. With me in the studio talking about veteran homelessness are Paul Martin, who's a graduate and now program director for Baltimore Station, and John Friedel, the organization's executive director. We've been joined on the phone by Lynn Brockmeyer, who is a behavioral health manager for the regional health systems in Riverside, California, and also Beth Sandor, who heads up an ambitious national homelessness reduction effort. I want to get out of the way and give you all a chance to ask each other questions. So, uh, so Paul, John, do you have any questions that you wanted to ask to, uh, to Lynn or to Beth? I think one, one thing is uh, in terms of assessing and, and locating affordable housing in your region, um, if you could elaborate a little bit more on what uh, resources and tools you're using to do that, it would be great. So this is Lynn. I can say one of the key pieces that um, helped us, because we have a really low vacancy rate here, it's extremely difficult for us to identify apartments and um, locations that are within the federal um, guidelines. Um, but what we've done is that we've made it a priority in our community to prioritize any of the resources that we have. So our public housing authority, for example, prioritized their Section 8 list. So their vouchers that are Section 8 are available for veterans who aren't eligible for our BASH vouchers, um, which are through the VA. Our HUD COC um, through utilizing our coordinated entry and our housing crisis response system, are able to prioritize our COC HUD-funded grants as well. And the majority of those, a good number of those, are scattered sites, meaning that we can go to any neighborhood that the veteran chooses and help that veteran um, locate housing that um, they choose that they would like to be. But the difficulty with that is getting landlords to work with us when we have individuals who have really significant barriers, including really um, poor credit history. So we uh, have held a, a few landlord summits. We just had one in September again, a Valor Landlord Summit. Um, we awarded those of, who have helped us in the past in front of new landlords who haven't worked with the program. And we had a landlord champion 
who shared their experience um, working with some of the rental subsidies and working with some of the veterans. And then we had a female and a male veteran share their stories of success and recovery through utilizing some of these resources. And we also brought in Fair Housing as a partner, and they provided some free fair housing training, which brought in more of the landlords who need that training, and it saved them funding so they were really willing to come and sit. And it gave us an opportunity to expand the landlords willing to work with us. That's that's great, and you know we face similar challenges here. And I think one of the barriers that's been really hard to bust is if multiple or three, let's say two or three veterans wanted to share housing, finding a landlord who's willing to accept vouchers in that scenario. Because if one falls behind, eviction to all kind of becomes the norm. So that's been a, a barrier for a lot of the guys. Uh, I think finding reasonable and affordable housing in our city where you can leverage a voucher is also difficult. A house or an apartment that would pass muster and, and be uh, credentialed in would be is difficult to find. Um, we are embarking on a project with, a, with another partner to build 65 units of affordable housing um, that would then also be able to have the supportive housing uh, model where de- service delivery could occur on site. Um, hopefully that will occur in 2019. Uh, but we are doing that in direct response to the lack of really good options for folks to even exercise a voucher. And have there so so you take that as as one example. Where is an example where that type of frame has has played out and has worked? Yeah, I've, I've seen it in other other uh, instances, not necessarily in the veteran model, but again, where you can really get a family back together, one, two, and three bedroom apartments um, co-located in a community that uh, is proximate to uh, the VA hospital, proximate to transportation and job opportunities, which I think is a limiting factor also for a lot of our men uh, in Baltimore City. Uh, but again, trying to, to build that out just so that we can then do the aftercare model through the PRP, psychiatric rehabilitation, uh, provide services when needed, and then also that connection. A lot of the guys want to uh, remain connected to each other. They form a network and a bond, and I think that's an opportunity there. So, Beth, I, I want to bring you back into this uh, into this conversation as well. You uh, you know run a, a, a homeless reduction effort. Can you talk a bit about what's happening in Los Angeles and, and what you've seen in, in other parts of the state that you think are, are creative, innovative, uh, that, uh, that, that all of us could also learn from? So I think what's really exciting in L.A. and other major cities in California, we work with about eight other cities, including Sacramento and Fresno and San Diego, um, is that all of these communities have real-time by-name lists of every veteran um, in their community. They can tell you at any given time not only how many people are homeless in their community, how many veterans are homeless, but who those veterans are by name, by housing need, and they can really um, strategize around making sure they can match resources and services to those individuals in the service of permanent housing outcomes. And I think that feels like the foundation of all of this work, that it allows you to really figure out um, what Don and Paul were talking about, what housing you actually need in the long term in your community. It allows you to understand if you have enough resources, if you need to advocate for more. I think that, um, that work that these communities are doing is shaping all of their thinking about long-term and short-term strategies to get to these goals. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and I've been joined this hour by Paul Martin, who's a program director at the Baltimore Station here in Baltimore, as well as John Friedel, who's the organization's executive director. And on the phone in California, we've been joined by Lynn Brockmeyer, who is the behavioral health manager at the Regional Health System in Riverside, California, as well as Beth Sandor, who heads up a national homelessness reduction effort. I want to thank all of you for joining me this hour, and also thank all of you for your service to uh, to an important population to us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. As this episode comes to a close, I just wanted to take a moment to share why this episode is so important to me personally. I know what it's like to be deployed during the holidays. I was in Afghanistan during Thanksgiving, and I remember the feeling of sadness of not being able to be with my family, but fantasizing about what it was like to be home again and what it would be like when we got back together. I thought about the food. I thought about the hugs. I thought about the home that I would come back to. Now I know for far too many vets, that picture doesn't happen for them. The picture that they come home to is a lot less pretty and is incredibly different. Models like Riverside and Boston and New Orleans give us hope about what can be done and relatively quickly. But it also highlights the fact that we have so much more work to do to make sure that we are serving those who did such a good job of serving us. Future City is produced by Mary Wiltenberg and edited by Aaron Hankin. We welcome your feedback, and our email is futurecity at wypr.org. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. You can also hear this episode and past episodes online at wypr.org slash futurecity. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Funding for Future City is provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.